Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, it's the news. Let me tell you who's on the news, and then we'll tell you what the news is about. Joining us in studio today, Tanisha Dugan, produ- producing associate at Theater Works, Rich Holland, principal and uh, design director at CoLab, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, of, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance, and there's probably five things I left out there, too. Uh, today on the show, a little bit later in the show, we're going to, well, actually, the, the beginning two segments of the show are, in some ways, about women of a certain age uh, try, trying to gain mass approval. Uh, one of them is Maria Bamford in her series on Netflix, Lady Dynamite. The other one is Hillary Clinton, who's just running for president, that's all. Uh, a little later in the show, we'll also talk about uh, the revelation uh, that a Silicon Valley billionaire has been funding lawsuits against Gawker. Uh, and towards the end of the show, we're going to recommend some things to you. So uh, we're going to begin uh, with those of you People listen to this show at various times of day and in various formats. Those of you who are just listening live here on Friday afternoon just got through <laughs> hearing a Maria Bamford interview from 2013 uh, on, on uh, Fresh Air. Uh, you may be wondering, how much Maria Bamford do I have to listen to today? Uh, however, we're talking about the 2016 Maria Bamford. Her show, Lady Dynamite, uh, is a vehicle for her. It's a vehicle for a lot of other uh, people as well. It's uh, partially created by Mitch Hurwitz, who I think gets to be called a certified comedy genius based on the uh, earlier years of Arrested Development. Um, and <laughs> this is a – yeah, I mean, I'm sort of excluding the Netflix. <laughs> uh, but uh, But so I, I maybe – the way to begin uh, is with you, Carolyn, as somebody who's working in the same field and who right away when we suggested this uh, perked and brightened right up. Um, for that rare public radio listener who still doesn't quite get who Maria Bamford is, uh, what can we say? She's we, we, we know she's a 45-year-old actress and comedian with sun-damaged skin because we are told that so many times uh, during the series. And she's part of a world that they call alt-comedy, although I'm never quite sure I understand who is and who isn't an alt-comedian. Well, I think the alt-comedy world has sort of kind of morphed just into the mainstream comedy world, if you will. As you can tell by the guests, the guest stars on her show are all people that consider themselves to be alt-comedy world but are really quite mainstream, like Mo Collins, who was on Mad TV. I think she has become very mainstream and um, she's great on this. Uh, Maria Bamford, I have been a huge fan of since... Uh, for several years, she used to do these great YouTube videos, and uh, and the show kind of addresses. She sort of hit her mainstream mark when she got asked to do Target commercials, and uh, her her whole life kind of. I've just been following her life, her career, and her, and and this show takes all of that truth and kind of blends it with fiction. And I loved this show, and I think everyone needs to watch it. I'm a huge uh, Arrested Development fan. Mitch Horowitz is, I think. If I could sit down and talk with anyone or get inside anyone's brains, that he would definitely be on the list. And uh, I think pairing the two of them for this was just brilliant. I, I, do, I have had that opportunity uh, to talk to Mitch Horowitz uh, at some length. Uh, and he is, he's really, really funny and he's really, really brilliant. In fact, one of the – I'm going to brag now. One of the thrills <laughs> of my life is I did the Connecticut Forum with him and I usually do a little bit of kind of stand-up before they get out there. And then during the intermission, he came up to me and goes, what was that joke you told? 
Tell me that joke again. That was a good. So Mitch Hurwitz is asking me, and I couldn't remember which. I didn't know which joke he was talking about. But anyway, so um, that is worth a brag. Yeah, that is worth. So, so Rich, this you know, I I think of Slaughterhouse Nine. Billy Pilgrim has uh, come unstuck in time. This show Mm -hmm. is very unstuck in time. There are at least three different time levels to it. But not only that, there are multiple levels of reality. Uh, uh, Even when you feel as though in the early going, you you understand how many levels of reality there are. Uh, This is a a comedian doing a show about doing a comic show but also fantasizing about commercials that she might be in but which really don't exist. Uh, uh, We're starting to get adjusted to all this. Uh, And then we uh, see a bench that she's set up uh, in her neighborhood hoping that her neighborhood will become more communal. People will sit down on this bench. A cop comes by. It's Patton Oswalt, another alt comedy star. Uh, Here's what happens then. Do you have a permit for the community bench? Oh, no, I, I, is that required? It is, and uh, if you don't have one, you're gonna have to go down to City Hall and get one, or I can write you a 4950. Mm. I don't wanna write you a 4950. Hey, I, I can't do it right now. I, I've gotta get ready for a stand-up gig, but oh, invite him. Maybe. Look at that helmet, that's a good-shaped head, if you know what I mean. Would you wanna come to a, a comedy show? They're so wonderful. Uh, oh, I, 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 uh, I, oh, God. Maria, I'm sorry. Hang on. You, come here. You're going to put stand-up in your show? Cut. Yeah. I, I mean, is that bad? It's, yeah, it's bad. It is bad. It's just been done so many times before. You know, you got Louis, Seinfeld, Chappelle, Amy Schumer, my two pilots. Oh. No, they didn't go. I'm so sorry. Okay. We haven't officially met. Uh, are you the comedy police? I'm a friend giving friendly advice. Well, you're also an actor, so just say your lines, monkey. <laughs> an actor, so just say your lines, monkey. So, so Rich, we, we are playing three-level chess here uh, in time and three-level chess in an, uh, another set of dimensions in terms of reality. And it, that's already happening by the time that Patton Oswald shows up and then announces his own meta take on everything that's happened so far. Absolutely. And that was um, this whole piece, all four episodes I've watched felt a little like Inception, where every time you walk through a room, <laughs> you're in a whole other dimension, and you never know when that transition is actually taking place. Which is another howlingly funny property, but anyway, keep going. Get <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, right. The comic Inception. Um, the, the interesting thing about breaking this fourth wall is you're never really sure if that's what's happening while it's happening. Um, it could be uh, intentionally speaking to speaking about uh, the show itself, or it could be speaking about speaking about the show itself. And there's a there's a piece of that that was initially disorienting to me up until that one moment, that one clip that you played in which uh, the reality that I was living was lining up with the reality that the show was presenting because I was thinking the same thing, you know, just seconds before he stated that. I guess Sticking I, really stand-up? I don't know what's wrong with didn't my... did Louis do that too? <laughs> my, my weird mind, but I didn't... I was following it. <laughs> you know, I, I guess it's just how mine wor- my mind works as I, I was kind of with her on this journey, yeah. even, you know, up to that point. And I think that point, because I was, I was watching it with a friend, and that was when he had the aha moment of like, okay, so we're just all over the place here. But I had yes. picked up on this multilinear... Uh, I, I liked the scheme of this because I think that that is what was making this different for me. Oh, absolutely. And that's and that's a thing that I actually really loved about this, Caroline. Now, uh, 
truth be told, um, when I watched the first two episodes, I did not like this thing at all. It was um, my wife and I were watching it together, and and she just kept asking me to to explain what the heck is going on, you know, which challenges it, and why Colin was, made us watch yes, it. Why is, the, why is the news making you watch this show? <laughs> exactly. Why why are we going to do this? And please let this be just a half an hour show. But um, what happened after that is, um, you know, I was going to give it an another shot because it was starting to get kind of interesting for me. And what I did was um, I did what the audience is going to have the benefit of doing by listening to the show is getting a little bit of background on who she was. I had no idea who this woman was, what her what her arc was. And so to look at it again uh, with an understanding of that arc, all the pieces started to fit together in a way that I could just surrender trying to understand it and just go for the ride. Now, Tanisha, I had a slightly different set of reactions in the sense that really that, that Patton Oswalt moment, that was my worst moment where I, I was, that was where I was ready to bail. Uh, and, and, and How can you bail on Officer Lamore? <laughs> I mean, come on. I think because, okay, that was sort of one layer too many for right, me or right, one piece right. of medanness too, too, too many for me. And my question about this show still is I feel like I'm watching some very, very funny performances mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm watching some tremendous comedy material. But I feel like it's constantly in danger of drowning from its own ambitions mm-hmm. to be so much more than a half-hour comedy show. I think you're spot on and that was sort of my experience of it. It sort of reminded me of the fact that, like, the comedy shows that I like are really, like, classic family situation like I'm a Carmichael show kind of gal this doesn't really float my boat and it wasn't until the later episodes where I started to really like get into who this character was which subsequently I actually went backwards I watched the episodes first and then read Mm -hmm. um, that I learned that this was semi-autobiographical and that was interesting to me because now I'm watching um some psychology play out in a way that's yeah. like human and personal and touching and I could appreciate the characterization in a different way. I just like as soon as I watched it I was like, oh this is like Amy Sedaris. <laughs> like that's who she is. Okay. And um <laughs> I think Amy Sedaris is a better Amy Sedaris. That yeah. was like my Agreed. original uh, my my first sort of thoughts about it when I saw it. Yeah, I think we're seeing it the same way though, uh, Tanisha. By the time it got to episode three and four, mm-hmm. um, the setup, you know, all the setup that they needed to do uh, in the first two episodes to set up what what Duluth is really about, what past, right. present, you know, all right. the all the tense changes, the place changes. What shade and, of sepia will we use? Exactly. <laughs> you know, by the time so they set all that up in the first two episodes, yeah. and you know, and it was a little tedious. Um, but by the time it got to the third episode, we hung in with an idea a little longer. And certainly by the fourth episode, it was really about this idea of mm-hmm. of, of character and, and what our what we'll do for um, for approval versus exactly. what we'll do for authenticity. Yeah. And that yeah. becomes interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, okay, I think it sounds like a lot of us are having the same reaction. I also, I found the three and four, Carolyn, really redeemed the series a lot because, in fact, I could stay, as Rich is saying, with an idea a little bit longer in episode four just to give people a, a slight sense, Maria kind of accidentally discovers this kind of low, throaty voice that she can do, this, <laughs> this sexy woman named Diane, who people seem to like a lot better than they like her, uh, and she finds it difficult to sustain. But she's getting rewarded 
uh, not only by the attentions of a very handsome man, uh, but in other ways. And, and it kind of culminates with her uh, being offered the, the, a lot of this series, and this is probably the area where Carolyn feels uh, she can relate a lot to, uh, are moments in which Maria is either offered or invited to compete for jobs in show business, which are sort of humiliating or just <laughs> badly, badly flawed. And in this case, there's this incredibly misogynist game show or reality show that involves locking women up in boxes. Lock up abroad. And they want her to be the host of it, but only if she will speak in this particular voice. Uh, and that sort of is the moment where she kind of maxes out on this question of how, how much am I willing to completely distort myself. But as somebody who auditions a lot, and somebody who's sort of aware of a lot of programs uh, and ideas and commercials in development that maybe a lot of us don't get to see because they were such bad ideas in the first place. This <laughs> this must seem less surreal to you than it strikes us as. Yeah, I think I definitely was relating to this show on a whole different level than probably everyone else in this room. And I, I, I that's one of the things like I latched on to right away was how – her her interactions, that very handsome man that she lures in by talking in this low, throaty, like very like Connecticut waspy voice she has of this alter ego she's developing, which she develops because she's going to a dinner party and doesn't want – she hates having to interact with people. And that's something that I actually get. <laughs> I, I have been in situations where I've thought like – you know, I'll just make up who I am entirely right now. And I, scary enough, I've done it. <laughs> Do you lose the thread? Uh, but I, think, I no, mean, but that to me is like the meditation on a creative life and uh, a working creative life. Mm. I mean, that, that to me is the parallels that she's playing with because the insecurity that she has as a human being that she then places on these characters is like what I deal with every day when I talk to artists. It's mm. essential to being able to create the art. And now she's she's sort of it is she's opening up like right. that behind the scenes curtain. Exactly. And yes, it's like it's uncomfortable and it's weird, but it, there's just this great beauty in it because you see who she is as an artist. And I thought one of the funniest things in that episode that I could relate to is this guy when she's saying, like, let's be real. And she mm-hmm. returns to her own voice. And he says that one of his confessions of being real is that he hates the sound of laughter and has no <laughs> yeah. sense of humor. Oh, this is <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it just like for a comedian where you're you're just right. so much of your value of yourself is based on being funny to be sitting there with a guy who's like, oh, the sound of laughter, like just the look on and her expressions and reactions are just priceless. And this show in that way reminded me. I know that, Colin, you mentioned in emails this week, The Comeback, which is another one of my. Actually, Rich started that. But uh, yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, so this is the Lisa Kudrow vehicle. Yes. And I loved that show. Um, I was so glad when it got its comeback. Um, I thought that that was just such a brilliant and unlike uh, Lady Dynamite, that was not as autobiographical, um, but it was kind of that other, another very flawed female comedian like behind, you know, (laughs) behind the Oz curtain. And also going back even further was Fat Actress with Kirstie Alley. I thought that was another really brilliantly funny and raw, sometimes kind of uncomfortable to watch, but great, great show. You know, I, I do think... feel like the miss in this 
piece, though, and I saw all the buzz before you had asked us to watch it. It was sort of like everywhere and on the sites that I read. And I think it's it's an inside job. Like, it's an insider's comedy show. I don't know, and maybe that's just my take on it, but I don't know if it's really... There, 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 it certainly is speaking... I, I had the same sense that I wasn't always included in all the jokes. I think there were enough so that I did feel included. But, Rich, I, I also... I'm turning to the design guy for a second, Uh-oh. too, because... Um, well, I also <laughs> felt one difference between this and the comeback and Fat Actress or anything else. There's just a lot of production in this. This, Absolutely, this, this yeah. thing, the budget for this thing, I can guarantee you, is five times the per episode budget of the comeback or anything like it. There's just a lot of stuff that goes on. I, I will quickly say that although I kind of toggled back and forth in terms of how funny this was, uh, I mean the whole show was, I, I almost needed oxygen when one of the episodes began with a <laughs> Japanese commercial for a product called Puss, oh. Pussy Noodle, which is a ramen. <laughs> oh, you uh, can say that? Yeah, we, we, well, you can say Pussy Noodle. You can say Pussy Riot. You can say uh, – but yes, yeah, this is a, it was a ramen product. It was like this completely – but I mean d- bizarre, distorted, violent, <laughs> upsetting commercial for a, a ramen and, and a cup product. Um, but uh, I, I was also aware. That, hey, Steve. <laughs> yeah, they, and I Googled they, it and made the whole thing that much more disturbing. But they, they didn't – you know, they, they spent a lot of money just making that commercial. Uh, yeah, um, but the the beauty of it now is we can make things like this pretty inexpensively, right? right? Um, and uh, as long as you don't have to appease a client, right? So when Mira Servino's car takes off, they, they exactly. did that no, that's that's cheap. I have an app on my phone that can do that. <laughs> it's called Snapchat. <laughs> um, but um, Tanisha, to me, one of the other questions that I had was how how Pirandello do I need my comedy to be? Back to your point about how. In some ways, you would just like it sort of straight up. You just tell me a story and stick to it. And certainly there is a scene, I think it's in the fourth episode, uh, where um, or third episode, I guess, when, when Mira Sorvino, who is on as a guest at the end, she kind of ticks through the levels at which she's been performing. She's right. supposedly a British act- actress <laughs> playing another British act- actress playing an American role. And then uh, Maria says, well, you're also – there's Mira Sorvino. And she goes, oh, Am I, uh, you know, or suggesting that there, she yeah, floats away she in f- her, she flies away, in her, flies away in her car. And With there's a glitter. way in which every time this this series sets a table for us, mm-hmm. somebody comes out and grabs the tablecloth and whips it out from underneath all the glassware on it. And after a while, I I was sort of feeling like, well. Could, just stick to it. Just stay with this for a little while. You don't have to upend your own premise every two seconds. Yeah, I just. I- I am not a comedian by trade, and so I guess some of the craft is lost on me. And I and and it looks just really crafty. I think is is my separate from the story because I think that there is a story that she's telling about what it means to do the work that she does and how she got there, and how she continues to get there. But I'm not. I I'm, I'm sort All of, of like that heavy so, interaction with her manager and the oh, and, <laughs> and, oh, and I guess that totally yeah. makes me feel like um, what's her name? I'll eat you last. What's her name? Uh, Sue oh, Mangers. Yeah. <laughs> Like a Sue Mangers ripoff. Yeah. Anna Gaster? Anna yeah, Gaster. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Anna Gaster well, plays one of several uh, women uh, on the series whose name is Karen Matt. Grisham. Grisham. Karen Grisham. Yeah. Karen Grisham. There are three different characters named Karen Grisham. The main one, the one you see the most, <laughs> is Anna Gasteyer, who, who is this dragon lady uh, whose slogan we cannot uh, repeat on the air. So we may be able to talk about ramen products, but there are other things that we cannot Can say. Can sing her but, theme song? But her, no. her, Probably not. Her whole – but, well, actually, speaking of theme songs, one of the things that comes up – Carolyn, on this show, and this is something I do want to get to before we, we lose the chance, is that... Um, 
I don't know what I'm doing nearly half of the time. Well, there's sort of that. And, <laughs> that's and, a theme song? Yeah. No, yeah. that's, that's the their outro. The, right. the yeah. outro is and, my favorite. And, and there's, I know I, I should have written it down or put it in the document, but there's also this whole thing about it's better to have nine people really love you than 9,000 people kind of like you. And to me, this is a series both in terms of how we're digesting it and – uh, and in terms of what it thinks about, about sort of the long tail phenomenon, right? You, you know, do you want to be incredibly popular? Do you want to be Brett Butler, if that's what her name is, and Grace Under Fire, and have everybody know who you are but not care about you at all, you know? Or do you want to be— You could even pull up her name. <laughs> There's a reason for that. But, um, uh, or do you, do you want to be somebody that fewer people know about but care passionately about, which seems to be the— tr- I mean, I, I think one thing that we're all reacting to here is comedy has become so diverse. There's so many platforms for it. You could pick out the thing— spoke comedy. Yeah, you, you can pick out the thing that's exactly right for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this show, I don't know if anyone else here was a huge Arrested Development fan at the beginning. See, and that's the point. You probably just didn't give it the chance. And back then, it didn't get launched on a platform like Netflix where you could go back and rewatch it. And this show, I did... I did go back and rewatch it because Netflix is one of those shows that I put on as like a sleepy time show and fall asleep to still. And um, just because and it's one of those you every little joke that you missed the first or the second or even the third time, they just build and it becomes funnier the more you watch it. And I will say that, you know, having the same writer and the way that they've developed these characters and the way it's written, go back and watch it. Take us like go back and freeze it on a screen. Like when you see the dating, the dating profiles, go back and read those. I mean, there's just layers of little details here Mm -hmm. that are there to be appreciated on, you know, like there's like little secrets all throughout. Let me just uh, interject because I get it wrong the first time though. The, la- the great song in the, uh, the, the title of the show says, uh, I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. Uh, that's kind of the sentiment nice. that, that, that they're going for. Um, so when we were, when we were in film, when I was in film school, the big, uh, the big challenge was uh, to never expose the medium. Like we should not be aware you know, that we're watching a film. We should be transported beyond that. And uh, as soon as everybody got comfortable with that theory, we automatically started throwing it against the wall to see what happens, right? And then you get to Oliver Stone making a thing like JFK or Natural Born Killers where it's all about um, of the, the high visibility of the medium, of, you know, of the director's hand and the director's, the director's grasp of, you know, of what he's working with. And... Um, and so I think that we're at a point now where we could actually be comfortable with that, right? So it's not char- jarring us in terms of saying like, oh, my God, this is new and I'm not ready for it. It's, oh, this is that and do I want – do I feel like having it? Yeah. Um, very quickly uh, just because uh, – so the third episode uh, does veer into the whole question of race. Uh, and uh, I have to say at the beginning that I, I apologized in a way to Tanisha that she uh, didn't get to be on the Beyonce uh, version true. episode of The Nose. But she had to. That was sad. She, she I did not to, either. She had to do this uh, white lady comedians uh, thing here. Exactly. Um, and, and, and one of the things that I did. I, I feigned my interest. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I quoted Kimmy Schmidt to you. There's, an, actually, there, there's sort of a moment in Kimmy Schmidt where she's <laughs> talking to a, an African-American woman who's a GED teacher. Yeah. And uh, Kimmy says, well, Dong and I were kind of the Ra's and Fraser uh, of our GED class, and she's she makes a reference. Is it to this Maxine? Is like and Kyle, and Ma- yeah, Kyle and Maxine. Kyle and Maxine. She goes, "Well, I know. I was, I've got a kind of Kyle and Maxine thing with my boss." Kimmy looks at her blankly, and she and this woman says, "Oh." You don't know living single, but I'm supposed to know all about Frazier. Uh, <laughs> and my response to him was dead with the laughing cry face because it's 
So true. But so this in the third episode, in fact, they do go there. They do talk quite a lot about race. We do, um, first of all, see um, Kim, uh, Kimmy. We see Maria at the pool with this uh, black character who has um, surfaced in a whole other context that I can't even begin to describe <laughs> to you, but which is also very funny. Uh, and so here's the back and forth between them. Black man can't be in the pool. Want to call the mayor, have him drain it? No, 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 no. It's just that oh, oh, we've been running into each other, and and the, uh, now you're here. You know. I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I have a. Uh, I love humor. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, I did. Uh, I was scared there for a second. Why? Because I'm black. No. I was kidding again. Oh my god. Oh my you really God. need to lighten up. <laughs> like I wish oh I could God. do it. <laughs> but I'm black. Uh, um, am I supposed to laugh at that? Depends if you're racist or not. Do you think I'm racist? Is asking that racist? There's no right answer. Things aren't black and white. Or are they? Oh. Oh no. Oh no. I'm going to start messing with people exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. oh, no. um, it, but if you like that kind of humor, by the way, this is uh, early for endorsements. But uh, listen to Anthony Mackey's uh, interview on The Nerdist. Uh, he's, uh, and he, he has them up against the ropes for pretty much however long the show is in, in exactly that way. Uh, and it's it, – it's, I, I don't know. Um, what did we think of this particular episode? Actually, I'll, I'll just take the extra moment and um, throw to – this is a, a subsequent conversation between Kimmy and her manager. We mentioned him a few times. He's played by Fred Melliman. Is that yeah. his name? Uh, it's, they have a very funny relationship. He's a very, very funny character. Uh, th- she starts talking to him or he starts talking to her about one of these really bad idea projects. It's a sitcom, easy hours. You'll be home every day by four. Stupid money. Plus, I remember you saying you wanted to have more diversity in your life. Well, get this. It's a black show. The leads of these two black comics, you can't tell one from the other. Bruce. No, 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 they're twins. Oh, oh. No, I, I, I would like to have more diversity in my life. I'm just worried about everything I do or say lately, racially. Oh, are you racist? No. Do, do I seem like a racist? No, of course not. Uh, do I? No. Well, let's see what our old friend Ask Jeeves has to say about it. Uh, Chantrell? Yeah? Ask Jeeves if there are any groups in the L.A. area for people who hate being racist. I, I don't hate being racist. That's... You should. Okay, how about this? Are you nervous? You're a full-blown racist. Yeah. Yes. Are your ethnic friends annoyed that you ask too many questions about race? Yes. Bring your questions about black people and other minorities to L.A. Pure. People united for racial equality. That's exactly what I need. A group to talk about racial issues. I knew Chantrell could handle your issues to cover. She does, after all, possess the name of a black lady. Chantrell! What? Uh, nothing, my sweet. So... She's Asian. Yeah, she's Asian. Yeah. So, Tanisha, um, all of this is very funny, but it really is very much funny as the white person's problem with racism as opposed to the black person's problem with racism. Amen, brother. (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly my... uh, I was actually shocked that I made it to four and four made me start five. But that episode, I was like, really? I don't want to hear your struggles dealing with black people. I don't think it's funny. 
but there I am in my box again. So, <laughs> you know. Although it was rich oh, an no. attempt to, to make fun of a white person's struggles with their struggles it about was, racism. But well, it wasn't see, and, that, and, it exactly. didn't get there. And that's, that's exactly what my point was, what my point would be as well. That, you know, that you can pack that box so layered, like those little Russian doll things, that, um, that you actually never get to the heart of it. And this one... Wanted a, showed up. You want to you want to give me a little a little taste of the resolution on this one, you I know, know. or John at the Lindley, very least they never and they even address it at the end that like it just you know they did they get anywhere with this no I don't think they did and I but thought that it's that like was, I don't think they did but let's just you know go down the street in the gar on, on the end of a garbage truck like we're seen from the whiz or something you know and but it just doesn't that, really quite play like it. leaving it there like oh we didn't get anywhere uh, but you know the piece is like me, the thing that i think yeah. makes people right. feel comfortable it, and it's I'm less gonna, about i'm, I'm gonna have to just wrap this up because we will have time we'll have talked about nothing but maria bamford and then hillary clinton will not be elected president so uh we have to take a break and we'll come back <laughs> All right, we're back. Uh, we've been talking about Lady Dynamite, which is the new series for Maria Bamford on um, on Netflix. And now we're going to talk about Hillary Rodham Clinton. And we're not going to talk about the state of her campaign. And, you know, that would have been a good name. Uh, that would have been a good theme. Uh, they didn't think of it. But um, but there are other other ways in which there are some interesting what we call Papulian through lines uh, as we make this transition. There is a little bit of Hillary and Maria and vice versa. Episode four of Maria revolves around Maria trying to invent a version of herself that seems to please people more. This seems to be just an ongoing quest for Hillary Clinton. So this week, David Brooks wrote a column saying, why is Clinton disliked? That's the title. Uh, He says, I would begin my explanation with this question. Can you tell me what Hillary Clinton does for fun? We know what Obama does for fun, golf, basketball, et cetera. We know, unfortunately, what Trump does for fun. But when people talk about Clinton, they tend to talk about her exclusively in professional terms, Uh, blah, 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 Uh, about how she's multitask oriented, organized, deceptive. Uh, Her career appears from the outside to be all consistent. Her husband is her co-politician. Her daughter works at the Clinton Foundation. Her friendships appear to have been formed at networking gatherings reserved for the extremely successful. So, I mean, Rich, one question I have is, once again, is Clinton being held to some kind of different standard or is she being held to the same standard that politicians often are held to? Romney didn't seem like he ever had fun. Al Gore didn't seem like he ever had fun. It can be kind of a problem for you if you don't seem like you ever have fun. Absolutely. It seems like one of the um, one of the first tests of being president of late is, are you a guy I want to have a beer with or a person that I want to have a beer with? And um, so the ability to, you know, to be interesting, to be able to relate to others, to be able to um, to connect around common interests uh, seems to have been for for uh, better or worse. And we can talk about that later. An institutional part of of our American politics right now. Um, now, there is I say right now, but I don't think it is right now. I think it's always kind of been a, a bit like that. I mean, when I think about um, appeal issues between uh, Nixon and JFK, that was at play. Do we feel like we know something about JFK that makes us trust the guy? You know, um, oh, so he plays football with the family, and you know, and there there are some cues that we feel like he's going to that he might be advocating for the same things that I might be advocating for. Um, 
those seem to be important in our political structure. And um, and though we're talking about Hillary Clinton, I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders has the same challenge. You know, I have no idea what he's into or what he does, though um, he did uh, lay some claim to uh, to grandparenthood, um, which uh, which Hillary Clinton um, also laid some claim to. And you got the sense that uh, they could connect on those levels. But beyond that, um, we seem to crave more. And that also seems to be that kind of calculated vulnerability, that ability, that willingness to expose a piece of self um, seems to be a piece of how we define leadership right now. Although, uh, you know, Tanisha, well, I guess just to, for the fun of it, push back at that. I mean, I, I think about 2008. I'm not sure how much of the fun of President of Barack Obama, candidate Barack Obama, was evident at that time. And certainly ar- the argument that was being made was that, that both Obamas had to prove their excellence in a way that uh, that other candidates and other political families didn't have to. You really didn't, didn't have to be as good as everybody else. You had to be better. You had to prove in all ways that you were better. And, and I wonder whether Hillary Clinton is subjected to the same thing, that she, because she would be the first something, she has to demonstrate her excellence all the time. And then as kind of uh, the final insult, we say, oh, also, are you fun? Uh, <laughs> you've been killing yourself to prove that you are absolutely as good and as proficient and tough uh, and uncompromising and unflinching as every other male politician. I think there is some of that. But I also think that there's a bit of, um, you know, with the Obamas, we could put on them what we imagined that kind of person to find fun. Um, And I don't think that Hillary is the same kind of body. You know, like we can project what we think the Obama's household would be like. We can, and when we hear, oh, he listens to this kind of music or he does that kind of thing, we can create an entire life around that that satisfies our curiosity of what the the behind-the-scenes version of that person would look like. She is so blank, and I think that speaks to this idea of excellence, right, that she's removed any kind of personality from even her delivery, that it's hard to project an idea of who you think she could be um, and fill in those blanks for yourself, which I think is part of what makes it difficult to like her. She's been in the public eye for so long that I think that it is kind of remarkable that she's lived in the White House where, you know, and she's she's been somebody that you think you would know so well by now. But I think there have been glimpses. There have been these moments that for me have been these like aha moments that I've kind of like fallen in love with her as a person. Like I I was just Googling quickly to make sure that I got it. But she in 2012 when she was like in Africa, she was dancing on she like got up on the dance floor and was like all like into it. And when you watch that video, I remember watching that and being like, wow, okay, Hillary. Yeah, I will go out and have a drink with you and we can we can hang out. But it's just those like little there there have been these moments along the way where I think you really see who she is. But I think she is guarded because I think she's afraid. And I think I think she works really really hard hard to to deny them because I mean, you brought up the Bernie Sanders grandparent point. There's nothing more perfect for her to embrace than the fact that her daughter is about to have another child and to be to visibly show her excitement right. and thrill of that life change, right? Because that's the thing I think that connects her to other working women, this idea that your family life lives in in tandem with your your career. If she were to show that that actually 
had as much value as her running for president, I think she would that would immediately make her more likable to sure. most of the country. But Absolutely. this this like complete distance from the fact that there is like a life changing thing happening within her family's, you know, environment is just odd. And you know, and and frankly, when when I saw it come up recently, uh, the grandparent thing, um, it was it came up strategically, not intimately. You know, it came up as a as a positioning uh, against uh, Sanders trying to claim the grandparent uh, card. Um, it, she and needs Olivia. A, well, I think that yeah. she, she needs I think on that point <laughs> that I I I'm sure that there's a part of her because like when you think of a grandmother, mm-hmm. like you know you think of like I think she's thinking that people are going to think you know knitting yes. in a rocking chair, <laughs> you know just kind of like that image. And I think she is trying. But she's a boomer, to, and there's like a butt ton of boomers in her. Place. I am not and arguing that, but I think I, my parents are boomers and they are not about to like hop into the grave because they have a grandchild and they would love to see somebody who is like, I am vibrant. I am alive. My brain still works. I still want to do, you know, that's, I, I that's, do. I think that uh, it, I, maybe I sense another Papulian through line here, too, <laughs> between these two things. And it's the issue of self-consciousness. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, with Maria Bamford uh, the, sort of asking that Pirandellian question, what happens when the characters are aware that they're characters? And one of the problems that Hillary Clinton has labored under is more than almost any public figure that I can remember, um, a constant sense that, that we have that she's aware of the situation that she's in and aware of the questions that are constantly yes. being asked about her. So this week, we all know who can make anything better. Ellen, that's where you go. Ellen will make anything better. So in one episode of Ellen DeGeneres' daytime show, this week she uh, tried to deal with the problems that people have had that we've talked about in the past with the whole idea of a female Ghostbusters uh, um, uh, reboot uh, and Hillary Clinton. They were both on. The the female cast of Ghostbusters and Hillary Clinton were both on as uh, Ellen tried to make it all better. But what I saw was what I see all the time, too, which was, you know, Hillary Clinton was given a a, a kind of a pop culture game to play at the end. Mm. She played it very well. Um, she was sort of a would you rather kind of thing to pick running mates and she could kind of drool over Tony Goldwyn or, or whatever and she kind of got how to do all that. But, you know, I, I think you're doomed. Any of us is doomed when you when you reach that level of self-consciousness. You know, whether you're thinking about, um, you know, se- the act of sex while you're having sex or trying to do your signature while you're making your signature, the way to wreck anything sure. is to be really aware that you're doing it uh, and, and, and how anybody else might be regarding you while you're doing it. And I think she's in that hell that she can't get out of. Yeah. And the way the way you get out of that hell, and I'm sure everybody here has been there every time I've gotten up to do a presentation. I've gotten there, and I'm sure as performers, you've gotten there. Um, and you you take a big, huge, stinking risk, and you reach in for something that's authentic, and you dare to share. And um, and that's challenging. Um, if I could take a look at um, for for a second at at uh, at, um, at this thing that Sanders was up against when uh, when they kept pushing him on on his religion. You know, they were pushing, pushing. The guy could not get away from that question fast enough until the one time that he just kind of felt cornered by it and just like spewed a thing out that felt authentic. And boy, answered the question. And you know? it's a craft. I mean, Carolyn and I yes. both went to conservatories. We learned the art of being authentic in public. It's a craft and she's got the uh, resources to learn it. Because I swear to you, it could be the dividing line for her 
as we move into the general, because that's the one thing that Trump can do without a question is to give us the feeling of authenticity, yes. whether that is actually yeah. him or not. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for including the feel. I was yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. And 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 that matters. And yeah. so she needs she needs a little bit of actor artist training because Absolutely. it's important. It's important. I almost and, want her to just cut loose. Like, totally. Like, I would love for her to just get embarrassingly drunk and just be put out in a situation <laughs> where she loses all inhibition. And then, you know, get. And I think once it's she. The beauty drops of Elizabeth Warren's guard, tweets, you know, Elizabeth Warren's tweets, because she's tweeting, feels like an authentic moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when I see her speak, she feels authentic right. as well. Um, the, the other challenge that, um, that, uh, that HRC is facing is the comparative challenge. Is that um, that we're not just looking at her in a vacuum any longer. We're looking at her compared to other stuff, and um, and now authenticity isn't just um, is it there or is it not a, a checklist type of thing, but it's how is it compared to other forms of authenticity, and what does that really mean to uh, to your to your um, role as potential president of the United States. I want to read one a quick tweet here, quick tweet here from Red Menace. Uh, she writes, um, yes, much of political media values authenticity and other intangibles over competence. Competence is boring, no page clicks. Although what I would say back to that though is, I mean, I feel as though she's kind of losing on both fronts these days. Uh, there's a sense that first of all, the campaign itself uh, has not been all that efficiently or competently run, that they badly misjudged the problems they were going to have with Sanders, that she's really had trouble pulling away from him. And she's also living with the problem. I mean, obviously this week, the Solicitor General report uh, on the email servers I mean, a competent person would know better than to do something like that. We would forgive somebody for something like that if we had a more authentic relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems. She gets no slack cut for her because of this. I Just very quickly, uh, Carolyn, as we finish here and get ready for our endorsements, I mean, it is always interesting to watch what the world of comedy does with somebody. And obviously, the indelible impersonation uh, of Hillary Clinton from this campaign is going to be Kate McKinnon. And it's almost almost exclusively a very Nietzschean characterization. There was a moment on one of the recent shows where she and Bernie Sanders uh, aka Larry David are in a bar and they really have been drinking you know been they've been they've been drinking they're kind <laughs> yeah. of drunk uh, they're well, they're going to wind up dancing but at one point she kind of slumps her head a little bit down on the bar as if she's had one too many and she goes let me tell you something about me that nobody knows you know a little something she goes yeah I want to know something about you that, that other people don't know and she goes I really want to be president uh, <laughs> and that's 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 the Kate McKinnon take on her right she just is this instrument of will I actually hadn't seen that sketch yet, but that's exactly what I am picturing. That is what I'm saying, that we need Hillary to to do, to kind of – so maybe it's not a bad idea for her. Maybe she should just (laughs) – <laughs> well, some, some, I think she should have I mean, a beer her, with Carolyn. Her story yes. is yeah, so, we get that, we get is that going on so human. I mean, if you look at her story between the husband and the staying married, and the you know, and the and the fight to get through Yale as a woman and to become and to become you know leader of the free world. I mean, right, everything with about the exception her. of that. Piece, when you put it that way, <laughs> right, exactly. And, and I actually, of that yeah, piece, and, and I give her in, in terms of the likability factor. I give her a lot of slack. Um, a lot of uh, leeway for being married to Bill Clinton. Um, this is a guy that could do like a tremendous amount, just about anything wrong and still be a likable dude. Right. Okay, you know, we, and that's, we, a, that's a hard thing to sit with. We're going to have to wrap this up too. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to recommend a few things to you.
Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNBR Colin, and our intern is Leah Myers. The part of Bill Curry was played by Justin Timberlake. For show pages, articles, and photos, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. We'll be back on Tuesday with a full show interview with On Being's Krista Tippett. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, just very quickly, uh, that's uh, true. We're going to uh, take the holiday off, and there's going to be a holiday special for you. We'll be back on Tuesday. And I've actually already had this conversation with Krista Tippett, and uh, I don't know if she's anybody that you follow in terms of her show on being. Um, I don't know. I really like this interview. I'm hoping that people like it as much as I do. I think the one person that you don't know as a result of listening to on being or speaking of faith is Krista Tippett. But you will know her at the end of this much better. Anyway, time to endorse or recommend things. Uh, we'll start with uh, Carolyn Payne. What have you got for us? Oh, boy. I was trying to Google. Oh, no, um, OK. Here, <laughs> we'll start with Rich Holland. OK. So um, the the first endorsement is for uh, uh, for um, Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Um this is a shout out that's going out from all of us here on the panel today uh, to um, our friends, the Salazars, whose uh, whose daughter um, got into a very significant accident. And uh, I've been at Children's uh, at CCMC a number of times uh, with my own kids, and I'm taking a look at the care that these folks are giving uh, to uh, to this couple and their daughter, and uh, and big huge gratitude to that hospital and if there's any way you could think to support them do so um, my little preemie peanut alive so right on it's a good place uh next shout out um goes to uh, this past week i've been getting caught up on these great um uh, recordings of gratitude that was actually put on, put together by uh npr and uh, the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. It's called Words to Give By on, at wordstogiveby.org. You should jump on and take a listen. These are super inspiring, quick little uh, stories from all kinds of folk. Uh, today, I was on the homepage, and I noticed that there is a lovely photo of Kion Wolf, as it as I'm sure all photos are of Kion Wolf, uh, telling a great little uh, one-minute story of her relationship to her mom. So go take a listen, be inspired, do some good. All right, where's the give by and uh, CCMC? All right, what have you got for us, Tanisha? What do I got for You're us? Giving Carolyn well, maximum. <laughs> well, I, I got a cosign on both of those um, that Rich brought up today, um, and Miss Kion and uh, the giving. Uh, it's a it's a nice moment in your work day if you need a little pick me up. Um, in the meantime, it's the hol- it's, uh, it's kickoff unofficial kickoff to summer. So uh, Powder Ridge is doing a food festival, a food truck festival tomorrow, um, which I'm excited about. All of our favorite regional food trucks will be in the building or. On the slopes, I guess is a better way. Um, and because this is always the first place we go when uh, summertime kicks off, Angelico's in East Hampton. Um, looking forward to spending some time uh, over there this weekend. All right, Carolyn, are you ready? I am. Thank you for that extra second there. Okay, I wanted to check the date. So, uh, Pipo, which is a website uh, started by Stephanie Lang, who was a producer and director of Veep. She started this comedy website, and it's kind of all female-driven comedy. And they are doing a uh, show with female comedians and stand-ups in Boston uh, this Sunday night, 
I will not be there because I am rehearsing for a show up in the Berkshires. But uh, you should go if you are a fan of comedy and want to see some like really great up and comers. Uh, this website, just check out the website Pipo P Y P O and go see this show. It's you might see the next like Maria Bamford. There, it's it's just great. I know I have some good friends who are in the show and definitely go. All right. Uh, another thing that you can do that involves a live performance is to go and see uh, the roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd uh, that's being done right now at the Norman Terrace Theater, which is the developmental part of uh, Good Speed Musicals. Now, the roar of the grease paint it doesn't really have to be developed. It was produced, I think, in 1965 uh, in, in New York on Broadway. It has this amazing story. Uh, it's the brainchild of Anthony Newley. Anthony Newley was this um, brilliant songwriter. Uh, you know a lot of his songs, whether you realize it or not, uh, what kind of Fool Am I is probably the most famous unless you count Candyman. He wrote all the music for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and he was kind of this kind of odd career in a way. He, he had kind of a music hall sound uh, and also a great sophistication. Um, and he had the misfortune, I think, of having that musical sound come to prominence right at the moment when the Beatles had made it less cool and right before the Beatles started to make it really cool again uh, with Sgt. Pepper. But anyway, Roar of the Grease Paint uh, is, is a remarkable post-apocalyptic stage uh, down there in Chester. It looks like sort of, well, it looks kind of like Mad Max the musical. Uh, and it's so it's a bunch of the, uh, Mad Max the musical either that or Waiting for Godot the musical with, I don't know, special concentration on Lucky and Pazzo or something. I don't really know what it is. But there, there are these amazing songs once again, songs the, that, that you probably know, including Who Can I Turn To, uh, Feeling Good, which got turned into a Nina Simone classic. You hear it right now on, I think, Virgin Airline <laughs> commercials or something. Uh, the Joker, which was recorded by Sergio Mendez and Bobby Rydell and all kinds of other people. So you'll be these are songs in many cases that you'll know that you'll hum along to, uh, and it really is a great performance. Uh, Chester is an incredibly adorable place to go, especially around this time of year. So you can uh, go have a quick dinner at the River Tavern or the Good Elephant, where they've kind of converted to Vietnamese cuisine with a tang of Frenchness instead of the other way around. So you can have a, a wonderful meal there uh, and then spend a wonderful evening. This, this really is a fun show. It's not for everybody. It's, I mean, the, they have changed the staging of it. In 65, it was this very abstract and psychedelic show. Uh, they've done something very different with it, um, and, and not everybody's going to be knocked out by it. But if you love the music and you're willing to kind of you know, roll with the premise a little bit, you'll have a great time. So the Roar of the Grease Paint, that's my endorsement. And thanks once again to Tanisha Dugan and to Carolyn Payne and to Rich Holland. And we will be back on Tuesday uh, with, Tippet, with Krista Tippett. Two P's and two T's. Remember that. All the berries, Woodbury, getting on New Britain, burning. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.